Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR and I'm joined today for a podcast on Asia's eventual summer by François Godemont, who is the Director of our Asia and China Programme, Senior Policy Fellow at ECFR, who is talking to me down the line from Paris. So, François, it's been a, a pretty exciting summer for Asia. The last week has been uh, uh, set alight by China's uh, devaluation, and now we have the, the anniversary of, of VJ Day, victory in Japan, and lots of talk about uh, the continuing life of the, the Second World War in Asia and what it means and who's apologising and, and isn't, and whether it's enough or not. Um, so uh, why don't we take those two big events and try and take a step back and think about what they say about the future of Asia and, and what it means for, for Europe. Do you want to start by talking us through the debate around the devaluation? Because there's still a lot of speculation about exactly what the goals are. Are they sort of short-term economic mercantilist goals? Is this a liberalising move? Is this about China trying to float its uh, its currency? Is it a sign, something which the world should be worried about? Is it something which could launch different currency wars? Is it a sign of pessimism or, or one of optimism? What's your take on it? Well, there is at least one measure of success for the Chinese central bank is that it's, it keeps us guessing about what the next move might be. Would it be another nudge down? Could it be a nudge up, as they have hinted to today? That in itself is a success, because until now we thought we knew very clearly where the central bank was going. Beyond that, what strikes me is that after years of hype about the uh, Chinese economy and the almost supernatural abilities of the Chinese leaders to create uh, very fast growth, Today, we have a kind of Sino-pessimism that's creeping in. Everything contributes. Yes, slower growth, of course, but part of it was mandated by the, uh, by the government uh, because this was runaway growth. Was it really useful uh, to, for China to produce more steel, uh, far more steel uh, than all the advanced countries put together? Was it really uh, more useful, was it really useful for China uh, to produce uh, far more cars than anybody else and literally saturate the market? Uh, was it really useful to swallow half of the world's raw material resources, thus contributing to high prices that in turn hit China itself? I think we're back to sanity on the Chinese economy. Of course, uh, powering cold water uh, on a bubble uh, creates some, 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 some fumes from smoke and possibly even some smarks. So we have the stock market crash. Is that unusual for China? No, it's business as usual. The stock market has always gone up and down and up and down. Right now it's about 30% down after having been 150% up, but uh, some observers shout that this is a crash. Uh, we have had uh, the devaluations. Now, that is a strange game indeed, because the government has managed uh, to achieve fuzzy communications. It's saying it's letting the market play uh, its role uh, in fixing the level of the currency. And at the same time, it's clearly guiding the market first down and then up. 
that's rather contradictory, and it, but it's the reality uh, of a managed economy. The Chinese central bank just said it had a, 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 a managed currency for the first time. Uh, in, instead, what it has is a managed economy as a whole. So is a devaluation of 35 or 4% a tragedy for the Western world? Uh, I've, I've seen some comments from economists saying this might subtract 3% from world GDP. I think we're on the edge of madness. I think the, the overreaction of the European stock markets and the French more than anybody else reflects Euro pessimism before it even reflects Sino pessimism. Uh, I think that uh, what the Chinese have demonstrated uh, is that they can move their currency and they are in effect delinking with the dollar. That's a very big event uh, for the future. Uh, but it doesn't justify. Uh, the sudden wave of pessimism that has come in. It's not perfect, of course. It's not a move to free float. It's not a complete move to internationalization of the currency. I personally, I never expected it, so I'm not surprised. So what do you think the, the consequences um, are going to be? And what do you think they think that they're trying to do through, through this um, uh, devaluation? I think if one refers to how they have managed the currency in the past, what's really important is the incremental way, the small steps. Uh, seems to me unlikely, although one can never be sure, but unlikely that those small steps devaluating the currency will be, re will be re resumed immediately, but perhaps after Xi Jinping's trip to Washington in September. Uh, what we don't know is the end goal. Do they really want to take the currency down by 10 or 15 percent? That would not be the end of the world either because this is how much the Jinping rose uh, in relation to the euro, for example, over the past two years. And in relation to the dollar, it had risen by nearly uh, 50 percent since 2005. Yes, it would be a competitive devaluation. Yes, it would be a mercantilist uh, movement. Uh, but hey, what do you expect when others are, are doing quantitative easing? But do you think that it's going to spark off a, a kind of series of, of, of responses from other countries that we could see a, a, a kind of mega currency war unleashed? Or do you think that it's... Well, a... yes. Though that's the, the two risks are one, that domestic investors in currency games and foreigners playing the... Uh, CNH, the uh, offshores and mean B, conclude that they think they know that the central bank wants to talk the currency down and they ex and they therefore anticipate and amplify the movement leading to runaway devaluation. That's what the Chinese central bank immediately uh, put an end to uh, last week. But of course, it could happen again. And the other possibility is that not so much developed economies, which don't have really much to fear, uh, but emerging competitors with China uh, take a cue from that move and spark another round of devaluation. It's notable that Vietnam, which is closest to China, started widening the band of fluctuation for its currency only two hours after the Chinese had announced their uh, first move. It was an immediate, uh, literally a gut reaction. And, and we, we should watch carefully at what Brazil and perhaps India, although India's currency is market driven in principle, uh, will do. 
So, and what what do you think from a, a European perspective we should take away from this for, for us? How should Europeans respond to this? How should this change the way that Europeans think about China as an economic power? I think we should take it in stride. Uh, I am amazed by the comments which express worry at the fact that energy and raw materials are going down as a result. Isn't that good for us Europeans? Maybe it's not good for Australia, maybe it's not good for Canada, maybe it's not good for African producers of, 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 of raw materials. But for us, big consuming economies, it's excellent, just that it's good for China. And that has been induced by the uh, China's economy coming down to reality. So my first note is this is positive for European growth. It's not as positive for the exporters to China, of course, but hey, is 4% devaluation really going to change a lot? And for those who have invested in China, that is, who produce in China, and by the way, 60% of China's exports are constituted, uh, are, are done by firms uh, which are part, at least partly foreign-owned, it can't be bad. So what we have to realize, of course, is that the era of permanent super-fast growth for China may be over, that doesn't mean that the growth is going to trickle down to zero. I note that the, the, the analysts of China's economy usually don't note a figure. Uh, that's the rate of growth for individual consumption or retail sales. Uh, from July 2014 to July 2015, retail sales or individual consumption in China went up by 10.4%. For the past three years, it has always gone up higher than the overall GDP. So it's not the same kind of growth as before. It may be less Vuitton bags, uh, to name a, a company, uh, and more uh, standard supermarket fare, uh, but it is growth and it is less risky uh, than the real estate and huge infrastructure projects that have swallowed so much money in China. So you think that the, the kind of pessimism has been uh, overdone uh, by Westerners. But how much uh, of that pessimism do you think has been internalized by the Chinese? Because one way of, of interpreting, one of the interpretations which many people have given to the devaluation is that it, it is partly a, a kind of panic move by the, by the Chinese authorities. Panic move, I don't think so, but I think those advocates within the central bank who wanted flexibility finally won the day, helped by the fact that the central leaders and certain interest groups uh, couldn't see anything wrong with the devaluation. A flexibility that starts by devaluation can't be bad uh, for all the vested interests, so we have an ambiguous case of currency liberalization, uh, of course. Uh, yes, there are links, there is a psychological link. I am convinced, for example, that the stock market crash really happened, well, first of all, because the, the trees don't grow up to the sky, uh, and the stock market was so high. But second, because we had the Greek events, the euro crisis resuming, and a sense of gloom for China's exports uh, that immediately came over, and that helped dampen uh, the perspectives. The Chinese public, Chinese economic actors, are much more sensitive than we think to international news and to what they think and hear from outside. So yes, some of that pessimism may come to China. And again, 
stopping, for example, real estate growth and stopping major infrastructure projects in China, that takes a toll too. That leaves people on the ground. That leaves some credit uh, failing. On top of that, we've had events like the Tianjin uh, industrial accident and its aftermath, uh, which undoubtedly by some in the uh, population will be taken as a as a predictive sign that things are going wrong. This is traditional uh, in China. It doesn't come at a good moment. So you're right. Just, you know, when we talk about Sino-pessimism, as we have been talking about Euro-pessimism for so many years, uh, the psychological factor is important. Uh, the authorities are not fully believed, uh, and they, in that credibility gap lies a danger for the Chinese economy. Okay. So, um, the kind of final question, I suppose, is, is you talked earlier on about the delinking of the renminbi from the, the dollar. If that is a sort of permanent thing, what do you think that will uh, mean for the structure of the, the global financial system? I mean, the first kind of step is about China joining the, the SDRs, the special drawing rights at the IMF, which is on the, the, the cards for the next few months. But if there is a kind of permanent delinking of these two currencies, how does that change the global financial order? Well, first of all, what, what doesn't quite see what would be the use of the Jianmingbi joining the uh, IMF's uh, reserve system if it's pegged to the dollar? If it's a proxy for the dollar, what's the use of having it on the peg? So delinking is literally a precondition uh, for this to be useful. Where the problem starts is that the Chinese authority is completely ambiguous about the conditions under which they want the Jianmingbi to join. Uh, they are hinting to flexibility in practicing it at least uh, as a one-way street for the time being. We have to wait to see if it's really a two-way street. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, the currency is managed uh, a lot of the international agreements uh, are trade-based and therefore mercantilist uh, in nature. Uh, they're not really uh, lightening capital controls. These capital controls are most likely to remain in place. So we're moving to an exceptional system where the world's uh, reserve currencies, except one, uh, are free-floating, uh, you know, uh, following the mantra of the AMF of the past 25 years, or the past 30 years, uh, and, and one, uh, the Jianmingbi, joins on something that's still very close to its own terms. How much of that is acceptable, uh, I'm, not, I'm not terribly sure. So let's move to our second topic, which is the 70th anniversary of Japan's defeat in the Asia-Pacific War and the various statements that people have been making about it. The Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe issued a long anticipated statement. This follows statements from two uh, former Prime Ministers who expressed an apology for Japan's wartime aggression. And lying in the backdrop behind all of these statements about the past is a question about the future and whether Asia will once again become a fulcrum for great power war. So, Francois, can you summarise for us what did Abe say? What didn't he say? Did he do enough? And what does it mean? Abe has done far better than most people expected or fear. Uh, 
he, this was a high-risk exercise, uh, especially for him personally, because we know through his family origins and through some of his previous statements that he has nostalgia for a tougher revisionist position. Uh, his statement actually walks the walk and talks the talk on most of the issues, with some important reservations I will list at the end. Uh, but it's very clear that he puts no distance between himself and all his predecessors and the apologies uttered by his predecessors. Uh, all the words are there, uh, remorse, sorrow, uh, and so forth. Uh, the fate of women, uh, the uh, uh, untold suffering that the Japanese have inflicted. There is a particular accent, by the way, on the Chinese that unhappily is not playing well with Korea, who would like to be mentioned more directly, uh, whereas Abe has clearly targeted the Chinese public first. All of that is really a big reassurance for people who feared a revisionist statement. Now, against that background, you know, I'm, I'm tempted to quote the American uh, humorist of the Vietnam War, who about Lyndon B. Johnson and the bombing of Vietnam said more and more and still not satisfying. Uh, however much uh, Abe voices the apologies of the past and uh, is in sync with them, it's still not enough. Uh, several strains have been pointed out. One, he mentions women, but he doesn't mention specifically comfort women, and so gives no assurance to uh, Korea to finally uh, resolve that issue that Korea has raised uh, again. Second, he proclaims his agreement with all the apologies of the past, uh, but he doesn't repeat them himself. And in fact, he has this notion that 80% of the Japanese were born after 1945, and that the younger generations will not always be guilty uh, for the sins of their ancestors. Therefore, he's not distancing himself from the apologies, but he's using the distance of time to say, you know, we should move on uh, after uh, this statement, and this creates uh, criticism. Uh, all in all, I think it was an impossible exercise. Uh, Abe represents uh, the conservatives and, 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 and some of the revisionists uh, in Japan. He has a right uh, to the right of his party, uh, which would have pressured him. He has resisted a lot of this pressure. Uh, he cannot indefinitely uh, repeat the same apologies. I've been struck today that Emperor Akihito has come out with his own statement. It's customary on the anniversary of the war. But this time, uh, Akihito uh, has changed his statement and replaced the word sorrow with the word remorse. Some observers see it as a criticism uh, of Abe. I don't think so. I think this is in sync. Uh, I think this is uh, the imperial uh, family uh, putting itself on the same wavelength uh, about the past uh, as the government does, and this hasn't been noted yet. Success in diplomacy? Well, not quite. The Chinese are not making a big campaign about it, but they are uh, still criticizing uh, the, the few weaknesses in the statement. And clearly, the 
South Korean president is noting the issue in comfort women. She wants practical resolution. But all in all, we have avoided uh, the worst. Uh, we have a statement uh, that is, by the way, pretty close to history. Uh, it sticks pretty close to history. Uh, and we can only hope that Japan's political class leaves it at that. That is that we don't have uh, adverse winds uh, and right-wing politicians uh, trying to uh, make it go their own way. What, what would that involve? What visits to, to shrines and other sorts of things? Or, I mean, what could make things worse? Any statement that would emphasize the uh, weak points. Uh, for example, uh, Abe does note that part of the uh, Japan's uh, surge and, 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 and war of aggression came from the uh, Greek Depression. Uh, and the uh, lower exports, the economic climate of the time, which can be seen, you know, partly as an explanation rather than an apology. Uh, yes, of course, Yasukuni Shrine is still there. And by the way, Abe's wife went there this year. He hasn't been, but she went, and that has been noted uh, by others. Uh, then we can have a blockage again on things like the comfort women issue. Uh, Although one must say, in fairness to the Japanese, that the Korean demands are rather tough. What are they asking for? Well, they're perpetually asking for compensation and reopening uh, uh, of the files when, uh, in fact, in the past, there have been an agreement to close that. So what if we kind of look beyond the, the kind of immediate reactions to Abe's statements? I mean, how optimistic or pessimistic do you think the world should be about the, the sort of great power relations? Um, what does the, 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 you know, how much does history still uh, weigh on the presence of Asia? And what, what, how do you see the kind of geopolitics between these countries kind of emerging through that sort of well, historical prism? Abe is not going to be more powerful tomorrow than yesterday. I mean, the Japanese have said what they could say. They have done what they could do. Given the, the, the difficulties in their economy, it's not going to go much further. Uh, Xi Jinping is, and China are now in a kind of holding position compared to last year's uh, series of, of pinpricks. Uh, uh, assertions in the East and South China Sea. Uh, I think what matters today is to look at the Indians, is to look at India. Narendra Modi was expected to be a Hinduist nationalist and to worsen relations with the neighbors. On the contrary, he has uh, patched them up uh, in a historical way with Bangladesh. Uh, he's making, you know, Roosevelt-like or Kennedy-like efforts for aid to uh, uh, countries in the islands and island countries in the Indian Ocean. Uh, he isn't getting anywhere with uh, Pakistan. That's the black spot on his foreign policy so far. Uh, but we clearly have a, a hands-on India uh, where foreign policy has now been grasped as the number one subject for the prime minister. Uh, that is a contrast with previous years. It means we are getting closer to a kind of regional balance independently of all the interrogations we have on the U.S. role. Uh, a regional balance between China and the kind of... China, Democratic. India, and Japan. Yeah. 
and some others on the side, uh, like Australia and Singapore, but mainly China, India, and Japan, uh, with a more effective uh, India, with a Japan that will, you know, won't sabotage uh, its foreign policy with uh, idiot statements uh, about the past, uh, and with a China that will perhaps conserve its fire uh, rather than expand it, uh, at least in the coming few months. And I think nothing is definite for China, by the way. It's, it's cyclical, and we will see a return to those assertive policies at some point. Uh, but right now, we're perhaps more in a holding and balanced position. So you think it's a fragile balance that we have? Yes, it is, of course. Yes, it is, of course. Fundamentally, there is no agreement. Uh, fundamentally, there is really a test of strength. Uh, Fundamentally, the military efforts are, are progressing. Uh, the uh, 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 Obama's, uh, the Obama presidency's, uh, at all cost uh, avoidance of anything that would risk the use of force, uh, has the indirect effect of of putting in question uh, American support. Uh, it may be unfair. Uh, it may be that Obama has avoided conflict only to be more ready for it if it came his way, uh, but that's the way it is. And so when over a region like that, which is the first in the world for armaments, uh, where there are lots of unresolved territorial disputes, when you have no sense of the actual order, uh, the pecking order, or of strength, and strength is moving so fast, is fluctuating so much, you have risks. So um, it sounds like you're maybe more pessimistic about the security order than you are about the China's economy and the economic order. Yes, I'm pessimistic about the security situation in the long term because it's not settled, because China's nature probably prevents it from having a lot of organized settlements uh, which might be criticized. Uh, and because the uh, military uh, effort is continuing. Uh, on China's economy, all I'm saying is that we should not write it off. It's not dead. I find it ironical that Europeans, you know, that jump up in celebration when their growth rate reaches one or one and a half percent uh, overall, uh, would criticize a China that is probably slightly under seven percent, but again, with elements of optimism uh, like individual consumption. And by the way, I've heard a lot recently about the uh, lower exports and, and, and foreign trade. Yes, year on year, Chinese exports are down by more than 8%. Uh, imports, by the way, are also down more than 8%. For most of the uh, first six months of the year, China registered a historical trade surplus surpassing $60 billion in some months. If you call that failure, uh, I'm a little worried about that. Okay. Well, thanks okay. a lot for, for that uh, panoramic view, both of the kind of economic and the security issues. Um, that's been a, a really interesting discussion. We have one last segment left, which is the, the bookshelf segment. Francois, what's on your bookshelf this summer? I'll tell you what, I'm unable to discuss China and Japan, although I've had, I've, I've, I've read uh, some books, I've tried and, 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 and read Bob Gates' memoirs, uh, 
and that's interesting, but it, it's it's I don't think it will fascinate readers. It, it's fascinating how a, a, a U.S. defense secretary became literally engulfed by Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, Eighty percent of the book is about that. It's obsessive. It's simply incredible uh, to read it. it. It's interesting in detail, but perhaps not interesting to wider audience. Instead, I'd like to flag a French book which has nothing to do with this uh, and which uh, apparently has already been mentioned in other podcasts. But in my life with my kids, it has only happened once that both of my kids, uh, who are one is a teenager, one is slightly older, asked me to lend them a book. It's never happened. And it's uh, Welbeck's novel, Soumission, Submission, the fictional account of a France uh, where uh, a Muslim president is elected and, and where ethnic, ethnic or religious conflict starts. Uh, it's an extraordinary pessimistic book. It's an extraordinary uh, 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 accurate book about the crisis in our values and middle class crisis. Welbeck, by the way, is perverse enough uh, to be absolutely like what he denounces, that when he's criticizing us, he's actually criticizing himself. He has a, an utter contempt for himself. Uh, in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a fascinating uh, book. Uh, I think it should be, it should be read beyond France. Um, yeah, I think it's the third time it's been recommended on the on the podcast. So hopefully, um, uh, people will be reading it, and um, <laughs> we look forward we to collect a fee from Welbeck by now for uh, advertising his book. Yeah, no, though he he's one of these authors who seems to do quite well at advertising his own works without yes, um, without assistance from ECFR. On my bookshelves uh, over the last few months have been a couple of really interesting books about how China is, is changing both itself but also through its engagement with the rest of the world. So I might, might just mention two of them. Uh, I might have mentioned them in an earlier podcasts, but I think they're well worth looking at. One is um, Howard French's fascinating uh, book on China's second continent, which looks at how a million Chinese uh settlers are reshaping the African continent but he tries to use these granular stories of the settlers to tell a bigger story about the next wave of, of globalization what globalization with a Chinese face will look like and the other book which is also I think very interesting about China's future role is is the China-Pakistan axis by Andrew Small which tells um the story of the one really close geopolitical relationship that China has uh, with a big country other than sort of North Korea, I suppose. Um, and it's uh, he traces this relationship back to its origins in the Cold War, where China uh, used Pakistan as a bridge with um, uh, with uh, with Nixon um, in the early days as part of its uh, rejoining of the, of the of the international community, through to the relationship now where um, Pakistan is is a different kind of bridge, allowing China to shift from being a regional power to a global power by giving it the sort of naval outreach which is going to get from its port in Gwadar. Um, uh, and uh, also uh, helping it deal with some of its most pressing domestic problems, the Chinese war on terror in Xinjiang, um, as well as some of its uh, 
tricky relationships with with neighboring countries like Afghanistan. It's a it's a really interesting book, and I think the two of them provide a, a different way of thinking about China as a as a uh, as a global power from some of the things that you get when you just look at, at the internal debates within China. I've actually read both, and I agree with you, especially the uh, Andrew Small book combines excellent journalism that is quotes, interviews, talking to people uh, with, you know, with geopolitical analysis. Anybody who wants to understand what's going to happen between China and Pakistan with the massive Silk Road policy should read that book first. So um, there will be links to all of those publications on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcast, but we'll also put up a couple of other things by Francois, which I think are well worth reading. Francois wrote a brilliant piece on, on the Chinese devaluation uh, called The Postman Rings Twice. Um, and um, there are also some, some recent uh, episodes of, of uh, China analysis, including a fascinating one on, on One Belt, One Road, which looks at China's great leap forward in economic terms, which we'll also put up. So from Francois Goodman in Paris, myself, uh, Mark Leonard in, in London, it's goodbye for now. The editor of ECFR's podcast is Katerina Botel. Our producer is Ulrike Franke. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.